Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn back again to uh, the book of Proverbs. We will definitely finish up Proverbs chapter 21 today. We started it last week, and uh, um, we got up to around verse 27, I believe it was, and uh, we didn't uh, uh, get much farther than that. You know, yesterday in, in the people ministry, <clears throat> I talked about a, a lot of things, but one of the things I talked about was uh, eight things that a, a pastor or a minister uh, should do well. And, um, you know, and I went through those. And one of those, if you remember, was the ability to educate people, give people information, help them understand. And really, that is what um, last week and really this week is really all about. Uh, there's not a lot of hot fire damnation stuff to preach on. Not a, I mean, there's some great practical principles, but it's not your ordinary standard message that you would get. But, you know, when you come through the Bible, when you come through the book of Proverbs, you're going to find that an element of the Bible just simply deals with the world around you. And if there's anything other than the Bible that God's people are really inept in, it would be the world around them, what's going on and the situation that's unfolding right before our very eyes. And, um, you know, all of this is dealing with the devil and the Antichrist and his attack on the Jews uh, in the last part of the tribulation period. And we are living today, seeing it unfold in front of our eyes in everything that we do and every, everything that we watch, everything that happens around us. We're actually seeing all of the uh, stuff that is really the beginning of the end. And uh, it, uh, it's unfolding right before our very eyes. And I gave you a number of things uh, for you to get into your Bible, and I, and I, I hope that you did. Um, but uh, they're key things. You know, uh, history, most people don't like history because history is very complicated. Um, it's, uh, it, let me say this, it appears to be very complicated. One of the things that Gentiles do with anything is take something simple and make it more complicated. And history, uh, you can't separate history from the Bible and God. And as long as you leave history with the Bible and God, history is, is very simple. When you take God out of it, then history becomes very complex. I've, I've studied history all my life, history of the world, history of America, European history, English history, you know, and it's a, it can be, uh, when you get down to the dirty details, it can be a very, very, very uh, complex uh, thing to put together. Again, just like the Bible, you have to break it down in components to get it. But when you put the context of history to the Bible, uh, when you take uh, the understanding uh, of the history from God's standpoint, it really makes it a lot easier. And um, this is the way I've tried to approach it. And what I gave you last week, <clears throat> many of the things that I gave you will be very good keys to breaking down history in its easiest form, if, if that's what you, you want to do. I understand that in every church, I get it. You have people who, who really want to learn everything they can about the Bible. They want to correct their lives and get everything in there to learn everything about everything that's going on. And then you have some that are just willing, they just want to go to a certain comfortable spot. I get that. I get that. But uh, if, if you want to really get to the point where um, you understand it all and have the understanding of the world around you and where you've come from, where you're at, and certainly where we're all headed, 
then you have to make sense of history. Because the God of history is the God of the present, and the God of history and the God of the present is the God of the future events. So I told you last week, first of all, and this was a major key, is the fact that there are two Christs in the Bible. And those two Christs are an incredible study unto themselves. Then I told you that the Bible and history will unfold itself around those two Christs. And uh, they both have agendas. And history in its simplest form, and I can't, I can't stress this importance enough, history in its simplest form is nothing more than God having a plan and moving in a direction to accomplish that plan, the devil moving against that plan to stop him. All nations, all kings, all, all everything in history will fall down on either side of that. Once you get that, once you understand that, then you have an easy baseline by which you can walk through history. One of the great things I gave you last week, I'm not sure what you did with it, but one of the great things I gave you last week was found in Job chapter 41, verse 13. The seven garment changes that the devil goes through. Absolutely imperative if you're going to understand history. If history is going to make any sense from the Bible and history is about the two Christ, then you have got to see how the devil changes what he does. And uh, God changes what he does, and we call those dispensations. The devil changes what he does, and we know that to be the seven garment changes by which he masks himself. And I gave you, again, <clears throat> uh, two of the greatest chapters anywhere in the Bible, really four of the greatest chapters, two in the Old Testament, Job 40, 41, and two in the New Testament, Revelation 12 and 13. Those will make up for you the key definitive chapters on, on the devil. I, I showed you another key of, of laying it out was dividing the devil into three distinct sections by which he gets kicked out of heaven. One positionally, one bodily, and then one eternally. And uh, it just kind of segments every aspect of history that you can study it in those breakdown of history. Anytime, listen to me, anytime when it's in the Bible and you're dealing with the Bible itself or you're dealing with history, when you see the natural division that God has put around something, that is the way to follow it. When you want to study church history, you break it down into seven periods. When you want to study the devil, you break it down into three sections. Everything that God does will have a natural breakdown that simplifies it, makes it easier for you to grasp, understand, and, and, and get what you need to get out of it. <clears throat> One of the eye-opening things, I think, that we talked about was the Old Testament Baal worship and how that they were involved in cannibalism uh, in the Old Testament. Most people don't know that. And how that they switched over, the devil, by a garment chain, switched it over in the New Testament and came from the Old Testament Baal worship in the Old Testament to the Roman Catholic Church in the New Testament. And, uh, you know, this is uh, the mystery of Babylon that we talked about in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Somebody said one time that the greatest book that was ever written against the Roman Catholic Church was never written by man, but by written by God. And that is so true. And that would be the Word of God. Uh, the greatest single book that I ever read, we have it in a bookstore back there, the greatest single book that I ever read was written by a guy by the name of Ralph Woodrow, and it's Babylon Mystery. It, without a doubt, makes the, every connection you could ever hope want between the Baal worship and the Old Testament and uh, the Roman Catholic Church, Easter, Christmas, all of those pagan holidays, he really did a good job. You know, it's an interesting thing. 
He wrote that book probably back in the 60s or maybe early 70s. It's been around for a long time. And then <clears throat> around 19, uh, well, it was after we started our church. It had to be around uh, 2000 something in there. Uh, uh, this book was the greatest book that I have ever read <clears throat> on the connection <clears throat> between Babylon mystery and Revelation 17 18, the Roman Catholic Church and bear worship. Around 1990, 2000-something, he wrote a recant of that book, called it by the same title, and went through and changed and debunked everything that he said and now said that he didn't mean that, that it was wrong, that that was not really true. It was an incredible, incredible parallel between the two. I don't know if somebody in the Catholic Church killed his dog. I don't know if they tried to threaten his life or whatever. But he took a 180 reversal on what he had said in the book. And uh, I, I, don't, I think the book is probably out of print at this time because uh, he wanted to pull back on everything he said. Without a doubt, that first book was the greatest book that you'll ever get your hands on. Uh, you know, the Bible is like a 2,000-piece a picture puzzle. You know, you go to Walmart or someplace and you get those um, picture puzzles that's got 2,000 pieces in it. And, you know, some people really enjoy sitting, wasting their life putting it together. Uh, the picture of whatever the puzzle is is on the front of the box. I never understood, if I saw the picture, why I want to waste my time putting a puzzle together when I already had the picture. <laughs> but that's just me. My mom... God rest her soul. My mom was, was, every New Year's Eve, was famous for that. And uh, I remember as a little kid, every year, New Year's Eve, my mom would start around 8 o'clock. She'd have a, one of those picture puzzles. Uh, we'd watch uh, um, Guy Lombardo. Who knows who Guy Lombardo is? Anybody? Oh, you, all you old folks are ready for John Knox Village. You know who he is. The rest of you have no idea. He was a brother to Snoop Dogg. And, 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 and Guy Lombardo was a band leader, and he hosted New Year's Eve every year back in the 50s and the 60s and that time. And, and we all would stay up all night long. That was, the, that was the tradition in our family. I didn't make it. You know, it was after Christmas, and I'd play with what I got for Christmas for a while, then I'd, I'd crash out. But my mom would start about 8 o'clock. We'd watch Guy Lombardo. I usually made it up till they sang Old Lang Syne, and we went out on a porch, and we beat pans back then, you know. <laughs> That's what we did. And uh, my dad, remember, shot his gun off, you know, killed three neighbors, but they never figured out who he was. And then after that, you know, I would, I'd, I'd be, that's a little guy. I'd get tired, my, you know, and I'd go to sleep, go to bed. And uh, I wake up in the morning every year that puzzle was put together. And uh, my mom would stay up all night long and she put that puzzle together. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, uh, at the time, uh, that looked like it was a very complicated thing. Years later, once I got saved and I got into Bible, I started thinking about that. And I asked my mom one time years ago, I said, Mom, I said, I remember those times and, you know, at New Year's Eve and they used to put those thousand-piece picture puzzles together. I said, there has to be a key to that. I mean, every night, every morning when I woke up, it was done. It was there on the coffee table, all ready to go. I said, how, do, how did you do that? And she explained to me that the first thing you do is separate all... I mean, you got 2,000 pieces. She said the first thing you do is separate all the pieces and you take all the pieces that are flat on the edge or the, or the corner pieces. She said you put those in a pile. 
Then she says you start working with the corner pieces and you build the framework of the picture. And then once you get the framework done, then you take the, you know the rest of the pieces and then you start to work from the framework in and you know what the picture looks like on the box. So you just work with that in mind once you got the framework down and then you add the pieces and slowly emerging from that as you put the right pieces together, it becomes easier because you see where the pieces fit because the picture is developing as you go. You know, I thought years and years later, that's exactly what you have to do with the Bible. And that's what we do here. You folks in, in, in Bible Institute, what we're simply doing is we're laying for you the corner pieces of the Bible, the framework. And we're, gonna, we're bringing you a baseline of the Bible. You already know from our times here and our times in the Bible together what the picture is of the Bible. We've talked about it many, many times. So you have that mental image. What you have to be able to do is see that picture emerge as you read the Bible. And what we do is the same thing my mom did. We frame the Bible, and then we take the pieces, and then we start to work from the framework in. And as we do that, the picture of the Bible that God intends matches the picture on the box or the Bible, and we all understand it. And by morning, second coming of Christ, <laughs> hopefully, we'll have the picture done. And that's, that's exactly uh, the way I, I, I approached the Bible once I understood that. And it's, uh, it's just a simple process. And today, you know, let's finish out this, uh, this passage here. We'll pick it up. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read what I did last week and then run it right into verse 28 down to 31, and then we'll go from there. It says, Proud and haughty scorner is his name. Who dealeth in proud wrath, the desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. He covereth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination, how much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind. Now that's where we ended last week. And uh, we're going to move on now in verse 28. A false witness shall perish. But the man that heareth speaketh constantly. A wicked man hardeneth his face, but as for the upright, he directeth his way. There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of uh, the Lord. Justin, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me? Thank you. Now, we know from last week that all of this material is dealing with the man of sin, the Antichrist, uh, in the tribulation period. That is the context, doctrinally. The Antichrist shows up at the start of the tribulation and begins to build a false alliance and a false peace with the nation of Israel. He sets himself up as Christ, a false Christ. His coming will be a a fake rendition of Christ's true coming, and uh, all uh, the religious world will be looking for him, and he will be connected through and from uh, the Roman Catholic Church. There's no question about that. 
the premillennial believers that you and I who believe the Bible and the return of Christ will be gone. So all you have left are people who are postmillennial or people who are all millennial. And a postmillennialist is somebody that believes that we are going to make the world a much better place and then Christ will come back. And the amillennialist believes that the millennial reign of Christ is not literal, it's spiritual. So both of those will fit right into uh, his theology and his plan when he shows up. We know that at the middle of the tribulation, we know this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, he goes into the temple, and the Bible says that he, he shows himself to be God. He sits down and he demands that the whole world worship him as God and sacrifice to him. And this is called Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, and these are not unfamiliar verses because we've talked about them the last couple of weeks, the abomination of desolation. Again, at this time, we know that Matthew chapter 24, the Jews now realize they've been fooled. We saw it in Matthew chapter 24. They're up on the housetops. They run down. They run into the wilderness. And we saw all of those verses, and he goes after them. And when he catches them, then he offers them up as a sacrifice. He cuts off their heads like the Old Testament sacrifice was to be done. And then he, uh, we saw from Psalm 16 and Micaiah 3, verses 1 through 4, that they drink their blood in an offering and they chop them up and eat their flesh, just like the Old Testament bear worship, just like Roman Catholic Church does with the blood and body of Christ and what the Antichrist will do with the nation of Israel. You know, the devil is a great imitator of the true Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that just that Christ had an earthly ministry for three and a half years, uh, you're going to find that the Antichrist will have his ministry for the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Uh, the devil, the Bible says, comes in and in, comes into the Antichrist uh, at the middle of the tribulation, and the devil has the last three and a half years as his public ministry just as the true Christ had his public ministry for three and a half years at the first coming of Christ. You're going to find that the Bible says that the uh, devil goes into Judas when he is to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, you'll find that in John chapter 17, verse 12. And you'll find that the, uh, uh, that the Antichrist or the devil goes into the Antichrist, Revelation chapter 12 and 13, when he's ready to start his ministry. An interesting thing in the Bible, we don't have time to talk about it today, we've talked about it before, but you're going to find that both Judas and the Antichrist are the only two people in the Bible that are called the son of perdition. Uh, Judas in John 17, 12, and then of course the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 17, verse 11, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. And, uh, you know, uh, they are the same. And as I said, the devil enters into Judas in Luke chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, when he's ready to do the work, just as the uh, Antichrist will enter into, or the devil will enter into the Antichrist when he's ready to do his final work. Now, um, these verses today, doctrinally, that we're going to look at here, uh, they all fit in that time frame of the last three and a half years. Every one of these things that we have been looking at last week and looking at this week uh, will be about that great tribulation period, which is the last half. Also, obviously, now, there is an inspirational application, and uh, we'll look at some of those as we go through because they will give us some good practical understanding on some things. Now, last week I told you about Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, 
and the six things that God hates. And then I told you that there was a seventh, uh, but that seventh capped off the six and made it an abomination. And these seven character traits uh, will be the character traits of the Antichrist and the devil. This will help us, when you would go back through those, understand who he is. Understand why he does what he does. Understand how he thinks about things. And in itself, those are an incredible study. And again, we don't have time to do that. Uh, then we'll have the seven attributes that, uh, that we talked about uh, back there. First, the Bible says that it was, he had a proud look. That was his first problem. Second thing was a lying tongue. The third one was hands that shed innocent blood. The fourth one was a heart deviseth wicked imagination. The fifth one was feet that are swift running to mischief. The sixth one would be a false witness. And the seventh one was showing discord among the brother. Those are the seven attributes that the devil has in Proverbs 6, verse 16. And then the Antichrist has also. Now, this is an incredible, interesting phenomena that when you look at this. Uh, we don't have time to develop this fully today, but I, I, as I look at these seven things, you're going to find not only are the seven character traits of the devil, but they break down through the whole Bible. These seven things, the Bible will wrap itself around these seven things. Let me show you what I mean. The first thing the devil has is a proud look. That'll be for us Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, where his pride lifts him up and he rebels against God. The second thing it says that his problem is, is a lying tongue. That'll be Genesis chapter 3, when he comes up against Eve and he says, Yea, hath God said, and then he lied about what God said. The third one will be that hands that shed innocent blood. That'll be Genesis chapter 4, where Cain kills Abel. And we know from the book of 1 John that Cain was of that wicked one. The fourth thing will be that a heart that devises wicked imaginations. That'll be Genesis chapter 6 up to Genesis chapter 12. Two key words in Genesis chapter 6 brings us up to Genesis chapter 11 and 12. It's the word imagination. You'll find in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 that all of the imagination of man was evil. And then you find again in Genesis chapter 11, verse 6, that at the Tower of Babel, that whatever they imagined to do, and that would fit into the fourth thing, devises wicked imaginations. The fifth one is feet that are swift running to mischief. That'll be Exodus chapter 12 up to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. That'll be the establishment of the nation of Israel and them being swift to run after the other gods I mean, they're not out of Egypt two weeks, and he's up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and they're making a golden calf. All through Israel's history, from Exodus 12 up to 2 Chronicles 36, they are running to mischief against God. The sixth one is a false witness. That'll be the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the seventh one will be showing discord among the brethren. That'll be the tribulation period. These seven things are an incredible study that the whole Bible shows you that the devil and his mindset is in operation all through history. Now, we're talking about bearing false witness today. The devil will bear false witness in two particular situations in the Bible, and you need to know this. 
and three actually, but we'll talk about two, then I'll come back and drop the third one on you. You remember right now, right now Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, to Revelation chapter 12 and 13, we know that the, the devil's been kicked out of heaven positionally. He's not been kicked out bodily yet. He does that in Revelation 12 and 13. So right now we know that he is the accuser of the brethren. And the Bible says that he accuses the brethren before the throne of God day and night, Revelation chapter 10. Now, the two places where the devil particularly bore false witness was, first of all, with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees to do this. And Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, Mark chapter 14, verse 55, Mark chapter 14, verse 56. It says this, Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. The devil used those people. And we went back last week and I showed you in Job chapter 41, verse 12, where the Bible says, I will not conceal his parts, his power, nor his comely proportion. I told you that the parts were the people that he uses down through history. Here's an example of that. He uses the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get counsel together to bring false witness against Christ to kill him. And of course, that's why they crucified him. The second one will be the nation of Israel, uh, uh, not only in the tribulation period, but throughout history. The devil hates the nation of Israel. This is why, uh, here again, all history becoming relative and becoming very easy by the context you put it in. All history is around the devil's hatred for the nation of Israel. And the reason why he hates the nation of Israel is because the nation of Israel was given the unconditional promises by God through Abraham that someday they're going to rule the world. The land that they have, we know it as Palestine. That's not really the Bible term for it. We know it as the Holy Land. There really isn't nothing holy there now until Jesus comes back. But we know it as that piece of ground over there that, technically speaking, was a land grant that God gave to Abraham that runs from the Ur of Chaldees over to Egypt all the way up to uh, southern Turkey there at Mount Arat. forms a pyramid-type thing. And uh, that is the original land grant, and that in the millennium is what the uh, nation of Israel is going to inherit. Each tribe gets a section of it, and it's laid out for you very cleanly in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. Clarence Larkin's book, the big book on dispensational truth, does a masterful job of putting it out if you want to get that much information on it. Uh, it's a thing where uh, he hates them because that was his land, that was his throne, that was his place of power before he fell in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. He wants that back. That's why all history will revolve around Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. All history will. The Old Testament, they fought over it. The New Testament, they fought the Crusades over it. World War I was about it. World War II was about it. Vietnam was about it. The whole concept is about who's going to get that piece of land. God rightly wants to give it to Israel. The devil wants to take it from them. So he hates them with a passion and will bring false witness against them all down through history to destroy them. And, of course, the greatest example of that in the Bible that you could ever have will be uh, the book of Job. And, uh, you know, most people look at the book of Job, and there's some great practical things in Job, very good stuff. But Job, from a doctrinal standpoint, would be uh, a picture of Israel in the tribulation period. Job is a type of the nation of Israel. 
He's on the ground seven days and seven nights being persecuted personally by the devil, just like the nation of Israel will be on the ground in seven years' time of tribulation being persecuted by the devil. The name Job means one persecuted. Job is in a land of us. That's exactly where the Jews are going to be in the tribulation period. Uh, Job loses all that he has, so does the nation of Israel. Uh, there's 42 chapters in the book of Job, 42 months within the great tribulation period. In chapter 38 of Job, God turns the captivity of Job uh, against the, his accusers, uh, just like he'll do with the Jew in the tribulation period. There's a resurrection at the end of the book of Job. Job gets his kids back, just like there's a resurrection at the end of the tribulation period. You'll find that Job gets back double everything that he lost as he gets restored, just like Israel. And if you go to Isaiah 61, verse 7, and Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 19, you'll find at the end of the tribulation period, guess what? Israel gets back double everything that they lost. It's an incredible study. And the devil in Job, he, we know what he does. He uses three friends that show up. Uh, Job wasn't enough that he, he's going through all that he's going through, that he lost his kids, he lost his health, he lost his farm, he lost everything, um, you know, um, his, his lovely wife shows up and she tries to get him to curse God and die and, and he's all by himself. If that wasn't enough, in Job chapter 2, verse 11, three friends show up. And this is where the expression comes from with friends like these who need, with en- who needs enemies because they falsely persecute Job throughout the rest of the book. And they tell him that Job is going what he's going through because of the fact that he's got sin in his life. And that's not the case. Now, once we look at that and put that into a context of the tribulation period, over there in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, you'll find that there's three unclean spirits in the tribulation period, likened to frogs, that persecute the nation of Israel. There's your three friends. Whole book of Job. Whole book of Job is an incredible study of of the nation of Israel being falsely accused, false witness against them. If that wasn't enough all down through history because of the hatred that he has for the Jews, they have been persecuted and had false witnesses brought against them. The first and the foremost in the New Testament time was the Roman Empire. Uh, By 33 AD when Christ shows up, Rome is the greatest military force in the world. And uh, she uh, has a worldwide, the known world at that point in time, which is Europe, uh, she, she's in charge of everything over there. She's conquered all the known world. And she holds Palestine and certainly Jerusalem. Uh, uh, Pontius Pilate and that crowd, he's the Roman governor that is uh, taking care of Jerusalem for the Roman Empire. And uh, the Roman conquest of the Middle East has sucked in all of those nations. And now the Jews, as along with their homeland, it's all part of the Roman uh, Empire in a military force. Uh, and they're severely persecuted. They're blamed for everything. Of course, the garment changes in 325 A.D. to 1600. Can't beat it. The second thing that persecutes and brings false witness against the Jews is, again, Rome. But not Rome as a military power anymore. Now Rome as a religion. You know what happens in 325 with Constantine. He brings about the Roman Catholic Church. And now the Roman Catholic Church uh, has all the other nations that she has conquered with a religion, just like Roman Empire conquered with a military attack. And now uh, she has uh, a church state set up, and she accuses the Jew of everything. Roman Catholic Church, up to 1962 to 1965, which was Vatican II, up to that point, uh, the Roman Catholic Church 
relayed the Jews as Christ killers. They blamed the Jew for the crucifixion of Christ and severely persecuted them. They severely persecuted them all down through church history along with the Bible-believing Christians, but they hated the Jew because the devil was using these organizations to, to do that. It was in 1962 to 1965 that finally the Roman Catholic Church forgave the nation of Israel and said that, uh, you know, it's okay now, we're not going to persecute you anymore. And they just persecuted them another way. Back in the Dark Ages, when the Black Plague came, it was blamed on the Bible believers and the Jew. Any disaster, any plague, any sickness, it was their fault. Uh, the, the black magical power of the devil through the Jews. And uh, when the Zionist movement started about 1900 and it began to move toward what was obviously going to be the uh, restating of the nation of Israel as a nation, we saw the false, false witness come in again. We saw in Nazi Germany, Hitler with his book in 1920 when he wrote his book, Mein Kampf. In that book, Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler deduced that the problem in Europe at that time, and Europe was going through a very tough time. The end of World War I really left Europe devastated. And there was a Great Depression all the way through Europe, and certainly in Germany. It took a billion Reichmarks to buy one loaf of bread. That's how bad it was. It was absolutely unparalleled uh, in any time. Adolf Hitler before he ever came to power, had aspirations of restoring Europe. And he saw in his own demented mind uh, that the problem in Europe that was keeping Europe down into the deep depression was the Jew. And he wrote in Mein Kampf that it was the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, that was the problem in Europe. And he made a pact with himself that if he ever got to the place where he had something that he could do about it, that he would eradicate that issue. And <laughs> he just about did, too. He just about did. But it's an incredible thing for us to understand. And during that period of time, the kids in school that are your kids' ages, they were going to grammar school over in Germany, <clears throat> they actually produced movies that showed ghettos with Thousands of rats running up and down steps and getting in everything and infesting everything and doing everything, carrying disease and, 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 and just all of the things that rats do. I mean, showed movies of the hundreds of rats running all over the place and they likened the Jew to those rats. And those kids grew up in that institution of that learning school believing that that propaganda and it, it, it false witness against the Jews. They wanted to set them apart from all the other people that were in Europe. So Adolf Hitler made them all wear a yellow star on their arm that they had to wear uh, to show everybody that they were a Jew so you could stay away from them because uh, of, of, of what they were. In 1950, after World War II, up to 1917, uh, 2017, where we're at today, uh, we find that the Jews are blamed for everything. In 1948, when the Jews became a nation, that very hour which they signed the paperwork that had stated themselves as a nation, they were attacked by the Arab League. And the first Mideast war with Israel was on its way. The, the Arab League was seven Muslim nations that matched up to the seven Muslim nations that Joshua had to fight when he went in the land. You can't separate God and the Bible from history. You just can't. 
Now, I know a lot of what I'm saying. I can see it on your faces. It's boring to you. You'd rather have me preach on, you know, something that is more exciting to you. Uh, and that's why you don't know what's going on in the world. Uh, that's why you think, uh, you know, manual labor is the president of Mexico. I mean, you just, you know, you never get past most of that stuff. But they blamed them for everything. And then, then there was four major wars up to the 1970s because the devil wanted to stop. And every time that the Muslim nations tried to take the nation of Israel, hey, Israel kicked their rear ends. They took the Suez Canal. They took land. They got more land that they, they had that was actually yours. And you know what? Every time the United Nations stepped in and made them give the land back. Over and over and over again, you see it. It's no different today. The Middle East is boiling over. The whole problem in the Middle East is the nation of Israel. And they don't like us because of the fact of the Crusades. They blame you and me uh, as Westerners. Uh, the Muslims hate us because of the Crusades. And they hate us because of the Crusades and because of the atrocities that would take place in the Crusades. Now, I've got to tell you something. There wasn't a Baptist in any Crusade anywhere, any place. There was no Anabaptist. There was no Waldensian. The Crusades was run by the Roman Catholic Church, and they're the ones that butchered the Muslims to such a degree uh, through all those uh, years, of, and they hate us for it. But they don't make a distinction between Baptist and Catholic. They just see us as Christians, and they hate us all. They hate us for that reason, and they hate us for the nation of Israel. So we see it. Israel is persecuted and false witness even today. You got people all the time that blame the Jews for the economic problems in America. They think there's a secret society of Jewish bankers who run the world. They talk about the Illuminati. They talk about all these Jewish people. And you see, what has happened is, is that God built into that Jew an insatiable ability to survive. And they don't get it because they don't understand the Bible. That Jew is going to survive no matter when. When the problem that Adolf Hitler had during the Depression, they can't buy bread, people are starving to death, and the Jews are putting gold in their teeth. And he looks at that and he says, <coughs> the problem is the Jew. Well, the problem wasn't the Jew. And of course, uh, he got that gold back in Auschwitz and Treblinka when they gassed him and they took the gold out of their teeth. And, uh, but they, they misunderstood that. And we misunderstand it today. That Jew's always going to survive. He is. He has that ability from God as God's people. Even though he's a long way from God, he has the ability that God says, I'll bless those that bless thee and I'll curse those that curse thee. He says, I'll deal with you. And uh, when they left Egypt, most people don't even get this. When they left Egypt, you know what God told them? They've been down there for 400 years. You know what God told them to do when they left Egypt? He says, you take everything that they had down there that you want to have. You take it as payment for 400 years. And they went out of there carrying chinaware and crockpots and colored TVs. And you talk about, you talk about, never mind. They, they took everything. And you see, the devil wants to keep them down by being persecuted and subdued till he can get in power and then he can wipe them out. And of course, the real source of of the world problems uh, is hidden behind the false witness against the Jews. And it always is. In most cases, you never listen to what somebody says that you know is wrong or guilty. 
you look behind what they're saying. And that is taught as a principle in the Bible. You want the real culprit. Uh, the real culprit was coined by Philip Schaff in his quote of Justin the Martyr in the, his book on church history on, on Antiochian fathers when he said, all roads lead to Rome. And that's true. The greatest world threat wasn't communism. It isn't the Jews. It isn't the Muslims. It isn't terrorism. It's the Roman Catholic Church. Everything else is a smokescreen. And the quicker you learn that, the better off you're going to be. Daniel chapter 2, in the image of Daniel's image of that beast, shows you that the legs are Rome, and then there's no break between the legs and the feet with the ten toes of Daniel, which are the ten confederated nations of the Antichrist. It's all one piece. When Paul wrote Romans, when Paul wrote Romans chapter 1, most people don't pick this up. Every other book that Paul wrote, he wrote to the churches that be at Thessalonica, to the churches that be at Corinth, to the church that be here. When he wrote Romans, he didn't write any book to Romans, a church at Rome. He wrote it to all that be in Rome. You know why? Because he's given Christian doctrine to the church, and Paul understands that the church, whole church age will be under Rome. So he didn't write that book to a church. He wrote it to us who will be in Rome. Rome is the world power. Always has been, always will be. Where in the first three centuries it was under the military iron boot of Rome. From the fourth century on it was under the religious iron boot of Rome. But it's that way today. All roads lead to Rome. Now inspirationally, the bearing of false witness by God's people us, slander, backbiting, half-truths and lies, will do the same thing to the church that uh, the devil tried to do to the nation of Israel. And uh, the devil will accomplish this third thing uh, where he did it through the nations and he did it through uh, his religions in the Old Testament and in, uh, in the church age. Now when it comes within the body of Christ, the devil will turn God's own people against themselves. And that's how he'll accomplish this. Uh, the key word to the nation of Israel and the church, and we talked about this the other day in people ministry, and maybe even Thursday night, is the key word of unity, a oneness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 talks about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Psalms 133, verse 1 says, Behold, how good is it and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Unity is the key. When the devil wanted to destroy the nation of Israel and he really wanted to put the pedal to the metal and get it done quickly, he used Jeroboam and, and, and Rehoboam and he split the nation of Israel north and south. That's exactly what he did. Once that happened, they may have existed for another thousand years, but their doom is sealed. Their doom is sealed. And you're going to find that in the tribulation period in Zechariah chapter 11 verse 14 that the Antichrist is going to break the band and the bond within the nation of Israel. And when the devil wants to destroy the unity of the church, he'll use false witness through slander and sowing of discord, the two characteristics of the devil that God's people fall right into, and he will turn the church of Jesus Christ against itself. Now, one of the greatest principles on this, on how to combat all of this, will be found in, again, the book of Proverbs, chapter 18, verse 13. It's a tremendous principle. It's a great principle on dealing with all the stuff that we hear in life. 
And if you're a Christian in any church anywhere on this planet, you're going to hear stuff. And the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13, that he that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. In other words, you get your facts. You follow the principles that the Bible dictates to you on how to deal with things. You follow 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. You prove all things. Simply get the facts before you say or speak to any issue. Don't jump into something without getting all of the facts. There's two sides to every story. And we have a tendency sometimes because we don't like somebody or we don't like this situation that when somebody says that, we're right on that bandwagon because we already have our mind made up and we don't have any facts at all. And when something is true and you find it to be true, then you use the principles and you handle it biblically. It's just that simple. The last part of verse 28 says, but the man that heareth speaketh constantly. He speaks constantly because he hears what God says. And because he's got the truth, the principles, the facts, he knows how to deal with any issue, so he's worth listening to. Proverbs 10, 13 says, In the lips of him that hath understanding, wisdom is found. Proverbs 10, 21 says, The lips of the righteous will feed many. Proverbs 10, 32 says, The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. And Proverbs 14, 3 says, The lips of the wise shall preserve you. It'll keep you. In other words, when a man is a wise man and he hears and speaks the truth of God, he's worth listening to. You can listen to him all day long, all night long, and get everything you need because he's speaking the truth of God. Now look at verse 29. A wicked man hardened his face, but as for the upright, he directeth his way. Now, it says, hardeneth his face. And we know from the Bible, uh, through the face, our countenance will be based on our heart attitude. Our face will be the window to our heart. Whatever's going on inside will show up on your face. It's just that simple. And, of course, that's exactly taught throughout the Bible. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, Cain just uh, was upset because God didn't accept his, his offering. Cain was upset because God didn't have respect unto him. And so when God shows up, it was obvious from his facial expression that there was something going on in his heart. And God said to him, the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? What are you upset about? And why hast thou countenance fallen? It showed in his face. Some people are harder to read than others, um, but some people just wear every issue they have on their face. You can see them a mile away. It's really easy to see when a child of God who is really uh, loves God and on fire for God, it's easy to see when they get out of fellowship with God. It shows in their face. I mean, it's just, it just as clear as can be. Our countenance is our expression based on our attitude toward God. Bible says in Ecclesiastes 8.1 that wisdom maketh a man's face to shine. See? Isaiah 51 says, I, I have set my face like a flint. That's Christ at the crucifixion. His desire in his heart was to take everything, so he set his face as a flint to take whatever was coming his way. John talks about the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 44 verse 11. He says, I will set my face 
against them uh, for evil. And it's God's intention to do what he's going to do to the nation of Israel. So we see that example. And I guess that, uh, you know, uh, uh, the greatest example of this, and there's great examples in the Bible. When it comes to the devil uh, and the Antichrist, you're going to find, as I told you last week, there's 18 men in the Old Testament who represent and picture him by the things that they do. And uh, when you see them and study them, you get more information on it. And here's another one right here, and this will be the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, back in Exodus. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, God speaking here, God says that I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he does in chapter 11, verse 10. He actually does. Now, I, I got to say this here. The, we have a group out there that we all know and love called the Calvinists. Well, we know them. We don't necessarily love them. But they're Calvinists. And the Calvinists believe that God, as you know, picks and chooses who goes to heaven. And they use places in the Bible where it, it looks like God does that, and then they build a whole doctrine on it. Romans chapter 9, you don't have to turn to it, just listen to me. Romans chapter 9 is, along with Romans chapter 11, are the two greatest chapters in, in Romans that deal with giving us understanding about how God is dealing with the nation of Israel as the church. And it says in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, God speaking, Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now that's in the context there with Pharaoh. So the Calvinist says, see, 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 there it is. God for Pharaoh, he didn't have a choice. God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy, and on he'll harden whoever he wants to harden. And they lift that verse completely out of context, build a whole heretical doctrine on it, which simply is not true in the Bible. And you want to talk about Calvinism, and you want to talk about God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, when you study your Bible, and a Calvinist really doesn't know how to do that. One of the biggest problems with it, and they are some of the most educated people on the planet. They spend their whole lives studying the Scriptures and never come to the truth. You know what? You've got to be something fundamentally wrong with you if you spend your whole life in the Bible and you still can't get the truth. There's something wrong somewhere. And his biggest problem is he can't read. Now, I know what Romans chapter 9, verse 18 says. I know that God hath mercy on whom he will, and he'll harden who he hardened. But that's based on that man's attitude of heart or what he wants to do with God. And they'll come back and you say, see, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Yes, it does, doesn't it? But when you read Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, when you read Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, when you read Exodus chapter 8, verse 32, when you read Exodus chapter 9, verse 7, and you read Exodus chapter 9, verse 34, long before you get to chapter 11 where God hardens Pharaoh's heart, the Bible says four or five times Pharaoh hardened his heart first. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he just took the already hardened heart that Pharaoh had. Five times before God ever touched him, Pharaoh hardened his heart to the things of God. So when God reached down there, he says, yeah, I'll harden his heart. I'll harden his heart based on the hardened heart he's already got. See how easy that is? God just used the hardened heart and the hardened face that Pharaoh gave him and used it to uh, get his, 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 his plan accomplished. And Pharaoh was a picture of the Antichrist and that hardened his face toward Israel to destroy them. Last week, I gave you Proverbs 21, 27. We talked about the Antichrist having a wicked mind. That wicked mind is against the nation of Israel. Now look at verse 30. Another good verse. There is no wisdom 
nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. Now, that's one of the greatest principles and promises in all the Bible for Israel and for you and for me. Simply, it's saying this, nothing or no one will stop God, stop his mission, stop his plan, or stop anything that God is doing when he wants to establish and plant his kingdom uh, with his people. Nothing or nobody. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. And all of this stuff, that, to get around the book, everything that man, every device that he comes up with, he tries to get around God and the Word of God to stop God, and nothing will, nothing will. And I'll take that one step further. Nothing will stop you if you're God's child and you have the principles of the Word of God in your life. There's only one thing that'll stop you. Bible says there's no weapon that was ever formed that can come up against you. There's only your biggest problem, my biggest problem that you and I have that is always going to be our number one problem that will stop us will be us. Never be anybody else. Never be. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, Being confident this very thing, that he hath begun a good work in you, and before of the day of Jesus Christ, there's only one person that can stop you. That's you. We do a pretty good job of that. It's just that simple. Now, he says the devices. He says nothing is going to stand before the Lord, and yet man is always coming up with the devices. Let me walk you through some of them here just so you can get familiar with it. Some of the ones you're most likely going to encounter. The first one you're going to get all the time, and you run into it certainly in school, and you run it wherever you go is the theory and the teaching of evolution. I must say that evolution, much like history, looks to be a very complicated thing because they want to mire you down in all of the things that they, they come up with to try to get you to the point where uh, you get lost in the minutia of all the things that they talk about, the species, you know, the, the, all the things that they go through and all the things that they bring up when it's really pretty stupid to even go there if you know your Bible. When I deal with an evolutionist, I never deal with them on the Bible. I never do because I don't have to. Because I deal with them on science. Because the Bible is the greatest scientific book the world has ever seen. And science, as the world accepts it, has to go back to the Bible. The problem with an evolutionist, he rejects the very science that he claims to believe in when it doesn't go up with what he fairy tale that he wants to believe. I read a book one time called Science Speaks by Dr. Peter Stoner many, many years ago. And he said that in our universe... And he was a mathematician. He said, in our universe, the number of electrons in our universe are 10 to the 50th power. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't sound like much. That's 10 with 50 zeros after it. And that may not look like much. But you've got a universe that spans, our universe probably spans, what, 100 light years in each direction? Filled with how many billions and trillions of stars made up of zillions and zillions of electrons, planets, cosmic gas, all the things that are in a universe, and he says that there are not 10 to the 50th power electrons in our known universe. That's an amazing number. And then he said this. He stated that the probability of any event that exceeded the number of electrons in the universe, 10 to the 150th power, could not ever happen. Now, that's where I'd start. 
He's a credited mathematician. Every scientist in the world would agree with that. And then he comes down and he says this, the statistical mathematical probability for the evolution is 10 to the 40th thousandth power. It's not 10 with 50 zeros after it. It's 10 with 40,000 zeros after it. You know why evolution couldn't be true? By science, because the number is greater than the electrons in our universe. Now, see, you get them on that, where do they go? That's not Bible. That isn't arguing the origin of the species or this or that. That is hard scientific facts that every scientist on the planet has to accept if he's a legitimate scientist. Now, then I'll take him to the next step. You got in your Bible 48 prophecies in the Old Testament. Those 48 prophecies were written 600 to 1,000 years before Christ was ever born. They're prophecies that deal with the, uh, where he was going to be born, how old he was going to be when he went here, how he was going to die, all the intimate things of his life. It would be a lot like me getting up and, and making a prophecy saying, you know, in the year 6565, there's a guy by the name of John Smith who's going to live in St. Louis. He's going to live in St. Clair County. He's going to go to the First Baptist Church in St. Louis. He's going to move when he's 30 years old to the eastern side of St. Louis. And uh, he's going to walk across the street on, on uh, May the 12th, 2060s, whatever, and he's going to get hit with a car. It'll be a Ford, uh, whatever they have back then in Fords in that time of the year. And he's going to be buried in Westlawn Cemetery, Plot 43, row 6. Now, what is the chances of those things that I just said actually coming to pass? Well, there's 48 prophecies given to the same venue about the life, the birth, the death of Christ, 600 years to 1,000 years before it was born. And the mathematical chances against that are 10 to the 157th power. That's 10 with 157 zeros after it. And yet... At the first coming of Christ, every one of them were fulfilled. You know why? Because the Bible's true, and evolution is not. I tell them this. You know, everything around us only got here one of four ways. It does. It either got here because it came from nothing, which is against the first law of thermodynamics. It came here because it was already here, uh, and then it just worked from there. That's against the second law of thermodynamics. The third example is that God did it the way he said it did. Or the only other one you have that it really isn't here and everybody just thinks it is. That's all you got. And science itself goes against every scientist on the planet. The second device that they talk about is that man is getting better and better. Come on. I mean, the very science that every science ascribed to believes in the first and second law of thermodynamics. One is that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Two is the law of entropy, that things left to themselves in a random state, they run down. They don't run up. Is your car doing better than the day you bought it? Is your house doing better than the day you bought it? We lived in my, our house for I don't know how many years now. Everything's wrong with it. We have to remodel. We have to put new plumbing in. If evolution were true, I'd be living in Joe East Osteen's place by now. <laughs> Getting worse. Let me ask you a question. The older you get, is your body doing better or worse? 
That's a dumb question. All I have to do is look at you hobbling around here all the time. <laughs> Things don't run up. They run down. Your clock doesn't run up. It runs down. I mean, you run, your light doesn't go up. It goes down. Everything in life runs by the laws of thermodynamics. And somebody says, well, evolution is, is a process of going up. Man is getting better. No, man is getting worse. And the very science that they claim to believe tears apart their very thesis. The device that bigger and better concept of a megachurch is really of God. And yet the Luke chapter 16, verse 15 says, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. I've learned something in my few years in life as a Christian and in the ministry. What everybody in Christianity thinks is great probably stinks. And what people don't think is any good is probably the right deal. Just write that down. You can just, that's all you got. You can leave now and you've still got a lot. Or teaching the Bible Christianity is a crutch that man needs to help himself, that there's no real truth in it. And of course, that, you know, that goes back to man's devices. Or the teaching that the Roman Catholic Church is the true church and salvation is only found in her, propagated by every movie that you ever saw, uh, that the priest is always the great guy and the church is always there. Teaching that works can get you to heaven. Luke chapter 18, verse 18, a, a rich young ruler, a certain ruler, asked Jesus one time, Good master, what good thing must I do to be saved? And people have been asking that ever since. The teaching that the government on earth can bring a lasting peace and solve all of man's issues. World War I was the worst war that, and uh, I mean, there's been a lot worse since, but at, for the time period, it was, the, it was a war unheard of. And everybody wanted to end war at the end of World War I. It was a devastating, butchering war. Terrible. So many inventions had come on the scene that was made mass killing of human beings so much easier. And it was, the, it was called the War to End All Wars. And in 1920, they put together what is called the League of Nations. And the League of Nations became the United Nations. And the United Nations also, after World War II, they put NATO together. That's a national alliance of all of the countries to stop aggression, to stop, to stop war. And the peacekeepers that you know I am, we're going to walk right in and stop war before it started. There have been 300 wars since it started. They haven't stopped anything. Or how about this one? The teacher didn't get the Greek and the Hebrew are necessary to know and learn your Bible. You don't even know that there was three major languages that God put the Bible in down through history. You don't even know what they would be. Or the teaching that the King James Bible was outdated and needs to be replaced. Without that. How many times I've heard that? How many times I've said, well, you know, it's just the fact that that old archaic language, you know, and nobody understands it. And we just need to have these new translations need to language changes and we need to update it. Really? Really? From 1889 to 2017, there have been at least 90 translations. That's a new translation every two years. Listen to me, bugwit. No language on the planet changes that fast. Somebody sold you the Brooklyn Bridge. Or they're teaching that the Jews today are not the real Jews. Oh, you get this one a lot. But the Gentiles have taken the place of the a nation of Israel. Now, these are all the devices of man. And there are many. 
And, uh, you know, you find the book of Ecclesiastes, he goes through all the philosophies, some 34, 35 of them. He goes through humanism, pragmatism, socialism, capitalism. He goes through fashion, existentialism. He goes through every one of them and tells you at the end of the book, fear God and keep his commandments for just the whole duty of man. But at the end of the day, and that's a Bible expression, by the way. I know it's very popular today. But at the end of the day, Matthew 5, 18 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will stand forever. You know why? Because there is no wisdom, no understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. It's going to stand. It's going to stand. Now look at verse 31. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but the safety is of the Lord. Now doctrinally, verse 30 and 31 will go together. And uh, just so you put those in your Bible, they are second coming passages. And, uh, you know, uh, the fact that no plan of the devil will stop God, no counsel will stop him, and then the battle of the second coming of Christ takes place in uh, verse 31. Notice it's called the day of battle. Run that through your Bible sometime. Go to Amos 1.14, Zechariah 14.3, Ezekiel 13.5, Hosea 10.14. Uh, you'll find the phrase, the day, that day, the day of the Lord. Uh, Revelation 16.14 talks about the day of battle. It'll always be the second coming of Christ, defined in the Bible. Now, this white horse rider here, or this, the horse is prepared against the day of battle. In your Bible, you'll find two white horse riders. You'll find it in one Revelation chapter 6, one in Revelation chapter 19. Let me read it for you. Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2 first. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts came in, saying, Come and see. And I saw a white, behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown that was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, the other one is in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through verse 16, and it says this, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in linen, uh, white and clean. Uh, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, but with it he should smite the nations and, uh, uh, and rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now I gave you a verse last week, two verses actually, found in Job chapter 41, verses 12 and 13. They're probably two of the greatest expounding opening unveiling verses on understanding the devil and his work. And he said in verse 12, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Now what he means by that is this. Through the word of God, God is going to reveal to you everything you know so you don't be deceived by the devil like the rest of the world. And then he says in verse 13, who can discover the face of his garment? The answer to that is not many people. It certainly isn't the scholars that put the column references in my Bible because they think it's an elephant or a whirlpool or a whale. Who can discover the face of his garment? Who can come to him with his double bridle? Now, I told you many times how that uh, the devil can only be laid out and be traced through one book, a King James 1611 authorized version. That's the truest statement that you'll probably ever hear. 
He hides and masks himself through all the other Bibles. That's why if you had a King James Bible up here and an NIV up here, you have 60,000 changes between the two books. In other words, whoever wrote the NIV didn't like 60,000 things uh, in that Bible, so he changed them. And within that 60,000 are all the cross-references and the verses that you could ever trace the devil through, let alone all the other things that they do. Now, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, you have the Antichrist as a false Christ coming on a white horse to, re- to set up his kingdom within the tribulation period. If you follow on through that chapter, you'll find all that it brings with him. Now, I say that because this. Every major seminary, every major Bible college in the country, most churches, and certainly most pastors who are taught by those institutions, they will teach you that the white horse rider of Revelation chapter 6 will be the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of them. There isn't a commentary that you won't get your hands on written by some Baptist someplace that's connected with that crowd that will not tell you that the white horse rider in Revelation chapter 6 is the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil has masked himself to the place where the body of Christ looks at the verses that are about the devil and they give the title of Christ to the devil. And the difference is to anybody that can read with any spiritual discernment, the right sword rider Revelation chapter 6, he has a bow, but he has no arrows. He comes in peace. He has a crown that's given unto him. If you'll notice that there's no truth associated with this rider in Revelation chapter 6, but when you go to the white sword rider in Revelation chapter 19, he does not have a bow, but he has a sharp tool with a sword that goes out of his mouth by which he smites the nation. We later find out that that is the word of God. Verse 12 says that he has not just a crown given to him, he has many crowns, and the Bible says he becomes the king of kings and the Lord of lords in verse 12. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, that his name is called the Word of God and is associated with God, faithfulness, and truth. Listen, you get the wrong Bible, you listen to some idiot out there that's going to steer you the wrong way, other than this idiot that will steer you the right way, and you'll lose your whole perspective of who the devil is and where he's at. And you'll wind up making the devil Christ in Revelation chapter 6 and giving him the honor and glory that is only due to the Lord's Christ. And that's what all the history of God and the devil in the Bible is all about. Him taking the plan of God that God had for the Lord Jesus Christ and he wants to take it for himself. Now, In the final analysis here, the devil wants to be God. We all know that. And he wants you and me to worship him as God. We saw in Matthew chapter 4, when Christ is on a mountain, the devil waited till he had fasted for 40 days because he knew that being hungry puts you in a weakened state, especially for 40 days. And the Bible says that he comes and he tempts him. Now, I don't have time to get into it, but everything he tempts him with is something that is going to take place at the second coming of Christ. We don't have time to get into that today. I look at the first two as just piddling around, waiting to get to the real deal. Because the last time he tempts him, he simply says, look at all the kingdoms out there. Look at all the kingdoms out there. 
if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all them kingdoms. Now, most of us read that, and we don't even see the impact of that statement. Because truth of the matter is, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to get all those kingdoms, isn't he? And you know who's going to give them to him? God the Father. What the devil wanted Christ to recognize is him as God the Father, and then he would give him those kingdoms that God was going to give him. You ever notice how Jesus combats the devil? All three times. He just looks at him and he says, it is written. And the Bible says the third time he says it is written, the devil leaves him. You know why? Because the devil knew as long as you have the Word of God and you understand what is written and how it's written, he has no place in your life and he can't do anything to you. You know, when he, has manip he manipulates you and me, when we get out of the Word of God, can you imagine how he can manipulate us if the Bible, King James Bible, is truly God's Word and all the other Bibles are truly His Word? Can you imagine the manipulation he can have of masking himself and hiding himself once he takes God's Word from you and supplements it with His Word to you? So he comes, the devil, with a church. He comes with a Bible. He comes with a higher institution of learning. He comes with ministers. All the right things, and he is transformed, the Bible says, into an angel of light. And he will deceive everybody he can with Christian things, spiritual things, but never biblical things or scriptural things. He'll stay as far away from the truth of the Word of God as he can. And you know what? You of your father the devil and the lust of your fathers will do. And when you and I get out of fellowship with God, you know the first thing we do? The same thing. We stay as far away from Bible truth as we can. Oh, you'll go to church, just won't study your Bible. Oh, you'll go to church, just won't come to Bible study. Oh, you'll go to church, come to Bible study, you won't do anything with it. When he came to Christ those three times, the Lord just looked at him and said, it is written. He had nowhere to go. That's why he hates the Bible. Devil cannot get around the book. So he has to make himself by changing it and hiding in it through its changes. So God's people today think that the churches they go to are really God's church when God is in a hundred million miles around. They think a mega church is the biggest way to go and all the things went on when the Bible and everybody in Christianity agrees and yet the Bible says that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They take everything that the world wants to give us and put it into Christianity. He does this by appealing to the number one problem we all have, our intellect. Because back in Genesis when the devil came to Eve, all the key word he had to say to her was, when you eat this fruit, you'll know things. That was it, especially to a woman. She grabbed it, man. And right then is where they put their intellect over the plain, simple Word of God. Now, I think you ought to be educated. I think you ought to learn everything you can. But when it comes to God and the things of God, the dumber you are, the better off you are. I'm not a very smart person. I just, I'm a reasonably understandable guy about things in life because I believe the Bible. But I'm not a very intelligent person by nature. 
But I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. When you get into that book and that book unfolds itself to you, the dumber you are, the better off you are. You don't have to wade through a lot of stupid educational things you've been taught. That's one of the beauty things about most of you here. Most of you did not come from other churches where you had to be taught and untrained in a lot of things. Few of you did, but even you guys really did well. But the majority of you were just river rats. You were just the scum of the earth that got saved one day and you didn't know anything from nothing. And for you, when I tell you the King James Bible, the Word of God, you believe it because you've never had all the other garbage out there. You just simply see it work. You see it real. You see how it unfolds itself. You're in. That is the best way it can be. In other words, stay as stupid as you are and let God give you His knowledge. Put your own intellect out. The Bible says, casting down every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And just let the Word of God do what it does for you. So by doing, he deceives himself into, into allowing all of God's people through their Bibles, through their churches, to take Christ out and put him as Christ. And just as God's Word will, will uh, instruct you uh, in the character qualities of God, the devil's Bible will instruct you in all the seven qualities of the devil. And you come to the place where uh, you have no power in your life. And this is why we find it at the end result will be the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, which has all of its issues. But the greatest thing it says about it is, it is the church of the closed door. God closed the door. No more revelation. No more blessings. No more powerful sermons. No more Holy Spirit of God convicting your heart. Everything now has to be man-made, man-constructed, and man-orchestrated. And it ain't the same. That's why you find God's people are so shallow today. And they, you know what? And they don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know the Bible. There are so many people that are believed the way they want to believe, and that's what they want. They don't care if God himself came down and showed them something else. They want to believe what they believe. So in the final analysis, we find that the devil in the tribulation period, wants to be God, shuts himself down to be God. But we also find that down through history, he's had that same desire. And when he attacked the church age, when he attacked the church age, I talked the other night about Ephesus and Revelation chapter 2, and I told you that the name Ephesus means fully purposed. It was the church that had everything going for it. It had the fresh Word of God. It had the impact of the apostles. Many of them were alive and knew Paul and the apostles. It had the freshness of the Holy Spirit of God. Everything they had, it was the church that was fully purposed. And you don't read three or four verses about that church. And he says, I have somewhat against thee. What do you have against that church? You left your first love. And the first love was the Word of God. And right then in history, we start to see all the things begin to creep in that took the Word of God from the church. And the devil uses that because he cannot exist wherever you have a book that authoritatively says, it is written. He can only exist when we get out of the Word of God, lose the Word of God, or take his Bible to replace our Bible. And then what we do, God forbid, boy, 
You talk about it. What we do, you talk about blasphemy. What we do is set up our whole Christian church service around the devil's Bible that makes him Christ and kicks Christ out and shuts the door. Well, we'll hold up there. Next week, we'll start in chapter, chapter 22, and we'll start to move down through that. We'll have a word of prayer here. I'll give you about five minutes, and then we'll call all the restart people up, and we'll get that all operational and get that moving, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll be dismissed from there. Don't forget about the turkeys. Don't forget to sign up back there. Help us out with that if you can, and uh, pray for all our people that are sick, and pray for Sam Gipp. And uh, let's be dismissed. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. Thank you for all you do for us. We love you so much. Thank you, Father, for the truth of the Word of God. Help it keeps us from being deceived. Help it keeps us close to you. And we'll thank you and praise you for these good people who love your Word, want to know your Word, and want to be part of everything that you're doing. And we love you, Lord, and we ask you to take this time and bless this afternoon as we go out. Uh, bless all our people that are sick. And help us do all those things that are honoring and glorifying to you. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.